So let's pray as we prepare to open the word of God together once again. Father in heaven, you are worthy of all our praise and worthy of glory and majesty and strength, and we magnify you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your sustaining power. We thank you that when you come into our lives, you change us. Uh, You have such, your Holy Spirit has such a profound effect on us initially and then ongoingly that we are never the same again. And Father, as we open your word this morning and see an example of that very thing, uh, the remarkable effect of the transformation that you bring, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach and uh, nudge us in certain directions that we need to be nudged and help us, Lord, to go out after worshiping together today and uh, be people, kingdom people, who would bring glory to your name and be humble and be forgiving and be loving uh, in our corner of the world, in our circle. We pray that you'd help us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now in the uh, final quarter of this sermon series, actually the final two sermons of this series. Over the past several Sundays, what we've been trying to do is to sort out, at least some, sort out the glaring differences between the new godless religion of ideological social justice this godless religion that has swept over the Western world now like a great tidal wave, the difference between that and Christianity. There are massive differences between the worldview of ideological social justice and the worldview of Christianity, and it's crucial, it's vital for us as Christians to see this, to see it in clear relief so that we are not, not duped by, absorbed into this deceptive philosophy that is now so pervasive in our world. One of the gigantic differences between the new godless worldview and Christianity is found in the area of forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, of course, as Christians... Forgiveness and reconciliation are at the very heart of who we are. And we talked last week a little bit about forgiveness and forgiving when we were looking at the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. For us as Christians, being forgiven by God and then gratefully extending forgiveness to others These are things that are basic to us, right? They are fundamental to the very air we breathe as kingdom people. But for proponents of ideological social justice, the case is very different. I want to read a quote to you from Scott David Allen's book, written just last year. The title of the book is Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice an urgent appeal to fellow Christians in a time of social crisis. So in this quote that I'm about to read, Alan gets at the vast difference between ideological social justice's take on forgiveness 
love and reconciliation and our take as Christians. So Alan writes this, quote, Christianity's ethic of humility, personal responsibility, love and forgiveness fosters reconciliation, fosters reconciliation. Ideological social justice's ethic is based on grievance and a desire to blame others for the world's problems. He says, it brings to mind this insight from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said, we must picture hell as a state where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives in the deadly serious passions of envy and resentment. This pretty well describes ideological social justice. It has no basis for love, forgiveness, or reconciliation. It destroys relationships and tears apart the social fabric. He says, Christians whose job it is to love our neighbors and to bless the nations must recognize and reject this destructive worldview as we attempt in God's strength to live out a more excellent way, a more excellent way. Well, I want to take us to a biblical text this morning where we are given a portrait of a human being who had begun to live out the more excellent way of Jesus Christ. This is a portrait of a person who was utterly transformed by the forgiveness of God. It's, it's a portrait of a person who acts in ways that shout out her deep gratitude to Jesus for the forgiveness that she had received from him. Friends, a real encounter with Jesus Christ and his forgiveness changes a person. It changes a person. It makes that person go and perform acts out of love to Jesus Christ and out of gratitude toward him. Acts that were not in the person's life before they met Jesus. And perhaps more than ever before, our world is in need of an army of such people. People who, because they have been forgiven much, forgiven an unpayable debt by the Lord, then go forth into the world offering forgiveness of their own, showing love toward their difficult neighbors. And so I wonder this morning, are you and I already in this army of the forgiving forgiven? Last Sunday, we were dealing with a man who had been forgiven in, the, in Matthew 18, forgiven his $190 billion debt. And one thing that we might have mentioned there, but we didn't, was the set of words that come in between verse 27 and verse 28 of that passage. 
the set of words that become that come in between those verses. So in verse 27, the gracious king, remember, suddenly, unconditionally forgives the man of his massive debt. And then in verse 28, the, the man goes directly out to choke the guy who owed him peanuts. But did you notice the words in between those verses, those words that say, the man fell on his face, sobbing uncontrollably, full of thanksgiving, humble gratitude to the king for having forgiven him the unpayable debt. Did you notice those words? Of course you didn't, because they don't exist. What we actually have in between verse 27 and 28 is just nothing. That's what's circled there, a bunch of nothingness. We have a little blank space, a little silence. There's a silence that comes in between the king, notice, in between the king forgiving the man and the man going out to choke his buddy, and it is a telling silence. The silence suggests that the man was unmoved, unaffected, unchanged by the forgiveness he had received from the king. The man offers no thanksgiving. He offers no emotional gratitude after the king forgives him. He just walks out, straight out, and he goes and chokes the guy who owed him a couple hundred bucks. But over in Luke 7 which is where we want to concentrate this morning, we have something very different. Something very different. In Luke 7, we have a story of an individual who also is forgiven of an unpayable debt, but this person acts entirely different than the unforgiving servant of Matthew 18. The woman in Luke chapter 7 is a glowing contrast To the man in Matthew 18, this woman lives a more excellent way, a more excellent way than the unforgiving servant of Matthew 18 because this woman has been, listen, arrested in her soul by the forgiving grace of her king. So let's go to the story which we find in Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. We'll take it verse by verse. Verse 36 One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus, to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And so our setting is a banquet at a Pharisee's house, and Jesus is invited. We talked a moment ago about that telling silence that fell in between uh, the verses in last Sunday's parable. Well, here, within this verse, there is another telling silence of sorts. Listen. After the words, he went into the Pharisee's house, we might expect something like this. And the Pharisee provided Jesus with all the customary conventions of hospitality that were expected at a banquet like this. A basin of water to wash his feet. A kiss of greeting on the cheek. 
olive oil to anoint his head. But we don't get any of that. What we get instead is, he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So already, if we're reading carefully, keeping the ancient Near Eastern context in mind, we wonder a little bit about the missing details of hospitality here. And as we go forward in the story, this issue of missing hospitality is going to become a much bigger deal. But for now, let's keep going. Verse 37. And behold, look, see, a woman of the city who was a sinner. So suddenly now we have this woman who is present at the banquet. Commentators are divided over whether the description of her here indicates that she was a prostitute. I think Daryl Bach is on the mark when he concludes in his commentary that it is possible, though not certain, that she is a prostitute. Possible, though not certain. So we just don't have enough definitive information here to make a conclusive uh, determination on that point. But notice the actions and the movements of the woman. Notice them very carefully. Verse 37. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, if, if this woman was involved in prostitution, this flask of ointment or perfume would have been used in her profession. Now she brings it to this banquet having searched out Jesus. She heard that he was at the banquet and she comes. And verse 38, standing behind him at his feet. So Jesus is reclined here at the table. His feet are angling out away from the table. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, there are several things to talk about here to dwell on in this verse, verse 38. And perhaps the most basic question we have at this point is, what is this woman doing here at this Pharisee's banquet anyhow? How did she even get in the door? After all, were Pharisees not strict in separating themselves away from those who they considered to be sinners? And I think the simplest answer to that question comes to us from Klein Snodgrass, who writes this. Listen to this, quote, In the Middle East, banquets tended to be less private than we might expect. Houses were more open, and uninvited people could come in and observe from the sidelines among the servants. Close quote. So, we are not terribly surprised, after all, that she's present at this banquet. But why her tears? There's much made of her tears in verse 38. She's weeping 
She wets the feet of Jesus with her tears. And you know what's interesting about this is that the same Greek word that we find here that is translated in this context as wet, she wet his feet with her tears, that same word is translated as rain in places like Matthew 5.45 and James 5.17. So this word describes a significant volume of water. So this crying that she's doing here is not just minimal. She is raining tears, crying hard. There is a noteworthy emotion in this woman as her tears, just get the picture, her tears splash down on the dusty feet of Jesus the washing of which was apparently not accommodated by the host of this banquet. But the question now is, what sort of tears are these? What is the nature of the heart water here, as Luther once called it, heart water, tears? Have you ever found yourself crying And the tears have flowed because of more than one emotion. Maybe you've experienced a sadness, but also at the same time, a hope. And your tears are mixed with the sadness and also the hope. Or or maybe your tears are coming from both joy and sorrow. For example, say you see your child graduate high school. We were just talking about a high school graduation before this service. You, say, you see your child graduate high school. You are overjoyed for her, but at the same time, there is a sadness. Why? Because it signals to you as a parent that your little baby is no longer a little baby and will soon be leaving the house. And so there is a mixture of joy, but also sadness in your tears. And that's the point here, is that our tears can come from more than one single emotion. And I think that's what's happening here with this woman at the banquet. As she cries, her tears perhaps are more complicated. For one thing, it seems from verse 37, if we read that verse, that this woman had been looking for Jesus. Now she found him at the banquet. We can assume that she was looking for him because at some previous moment, prior to this banquet, the woman had heard Jesus preach his message of grace and forgiveness, and she had been moved to repentance, hearing that message. Now she's searching Jesus out. She wants to find him and come and thank him. As the 11th century scholar Ibn al-Tayyib wrote, quote, there is no doubt that the woman previously heard the preaching of the Christ and was deeply moved by it and believed and repented and was anticipating the chance to make visible her thanks to the Christ and to confirm forgiveness for her sins and the salvation of herself. 
close quote. And so her tears as she finds Jesus, these tears are certainly coming from a place of joy. She knew since hearing Jesus preach that she was a forgiven sinner, that her unpayable debt had been forgiven by the grace of God, that the burden of guilt had been lifted off of her, and so she's crying tears of joy here that are falling on the feet of Jesus. But perhaps mixed in, mixed in to the flow of tears was also a sorrowing over her sin. A new recognition of her life and how it had changed and how she had failed God in previous days. Perhaps her tears are a mixture of both joy and sorrow here. Joy because of forgiveness, sorrow over sin. And perhaps further, her tears are tears of exasperation, even anger, as Kenneth Bailey argues and suggests. Exasperation and anger over what? Over how the host of this banquet had been treating the one who had so profoundly affected her. So far, the host here had humiliated Jesus by not offering him the simple expected gestures of hospitality. So could this woman's tears also be tears of exasperation at the host for not honoring the one who had so changed her life. Her complicated tears fall like rain on the feet of Jesus and not having a towel, because the host obviously hasn't provided one, not having a towel, she takes her hair and she wipes the tears off of Jesus' feet and kisses his feet and anoints his feet with the ointment. Now, several commentators have pointed out that for a woman to let her hair down in public like this, in this first century setting, this cultural setting, this was considered a shameful and even seductive act. But this woman doesn't seem bothered by that at this moment. She uses her hair to wipe the tears, and then she kisses his feet, which is an act of deep reverence and honor. And she anoints the feet of Jesus with the ointment. This is a costly action now, because regular old olive oil would have done just fine, but she uses this more expensive ointment. So we could summarize all of this by saying that this woman shows us by her actions that the forgiveness that Jesus had offered to her at some point prior to this banquet had been transformative. Had been transformative in her life. The forgiveness that Jesus had offered to her was driving her to come like this in great courage and in great risk in this setting with the Pharisees, coming now to act out these most grateful actions 
the forgiveness of Jesus Christ had so affected her that she could not resist coming to do here what she is doing. Verse 39, suddenly we have a dramatic change of worldviews. A dramatic change of attitudes. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he's looking, he said to himself, notice very carefully, he said to himself, So this Pharisee is not broadcasting what he says here. He's saying it to himself, perhaps even thinking it. And what does he say to himself? He says, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So, here, notice carefully, we have a window into the very motivation that this Pharisee had had for inviting Jesus to his banquet. What had been his motivation? His motivation in inviting Jesus had been to examine Jesus, as to whether Jesus was indeed a prophet of God. Notice this very carefully in the opening line, if this man were a prophet. Now, that had been the question that the Pharisee had needed to sort out in his mind, hence his inviting Jesus. Was Jesus actually a prophet? And so we suspect that this was not a good-natured invitation to this meal. It wasn't a good-natured invitation. The Pharisee simply desired to examine Jesus, to grill him. It wasn't just about enjoying the company of Jesus. The Pharisee wanted to test the claim that Jesus was a prophet. And in the Pharisee's worldview, in his theology, prophets don't associate with sinners. Jesus can't be a prophet because he's getting close enough to this sinner to let her touch him. That's his rationale. Now, we have to remember again, this Pharisee is only talking to himself, right? Only talk. He said to himself. No one else has heard his commentary. That's why verse 40 is so amazing. <laughs> Notice, and Jesus answering him. Whoa! Jesus knows what's going on in the mind of this Pharisee. Jesus can hear this Pharisee's unspoken commentary. And Jesus answering said to him, I don't know how Jesus said this, but I always imagine it's pretty direct. Simon, I have something to say to you. So now this Pharisee has a name, notice. His name is Simon. And Simon replies to Jesus, Say it, teacher. And then Jesus gives us a two-verse parable. Two-verse parable. 
verse 41. Imagine they're all sitting, reclining at the table. Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors, had two people who owed him money. One owed him 500 denarii. In other words, this first person owed the money lender about a year and a half's worth of wages, while the second person owed the money lender 50 denarii, only about two months' worth of wages. Now, keep in mind here that in this society, you could barely survive on the going rate of one denarius per day. You could barely survive on it. So if you owed 50 denarii, almost two months' worth of wages, like the second person does, you owed an insurmountable debt, uh, let alone owing 500, like the first person does. So really, both people here owe, we need to see, they both owe unpayable debts. Both of them do. Verse 42, when they could not pay, of course they couldn't, the money lender canceled the debt of both. Again, like it was in last week's parable with the king, there is this totally gracious forgiveness that happens here. The money lender, out of his own forgiving heart, out of his own forgiving heart, forgives the debts of both people. Their mortgages, their car loans are wiped away in one fell swoop. That's the parable. And then Jesus poses a question to Simon, the Pharisee. Jesus asks Simon, now which of them, which of the two who were in debt will love, notice the word, will love the money lender more? Is it going to be the person who had owed 50 denarii and had it forgiven, or will it be the person who had owed 500? In verse 43, Simon now, I think his tone here is a grudging tone. He answers and says to Jesus, the one, I suppose, for whom the moneylender canceled the larger debt, the, the 500. And Jesus says to Simon, a hundred percent. You did very well on your test. A plus, you have judged rightly. Now, friends, we're thinking through this passage. Before we leave this little parable, let's just take a moment to rehearse the obvious correspondences here that Jesus is making. Who is the money lender in the parable? It's God and Jesus himself. Who are the two debtors? In the context, well, the one who owes 500 is surely the weeping woman at this banquet. And the one who owes 50 is surely Simon the Pharisee himself, the woman who had owed the 500 in terms of her sin debt, shows her love for Jesus, the forgiving moneylender, and shows it in extravagant fashion. 
We've already seen that here in the text. She shows her gratitude to the forgiving king with lavishness, doesn't she? Crying over his feet, wiping them with her hair, kissing his feet, anointing his feet. Simon, who owed 50, shows a whole lot less love for Jesus. Both the woman and Simon had an unpayable debt. Both, to use the words of R. Kent Hughes, both are insolvent spiritually. Both, in the words of Romans 3.23, were sinners who fell short of the glory of God. Both were broke in a spiritual sense. It's just that the woman had been arrested in her soul by the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ and was showing it by her actions while Simon had not been arrested like that. Verse 44, this heats up now. Then turning, let's just get the scene here. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, So get that picture. He's turning to the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. He's drawing Simon's attention to the woman who Simon had written off as a sinner. And all this is taking place where? At Simon's house. At his banquet. Jesus says to Simon, notice what he says. Do you see... This woman, Simon. I mean, do you really see her? Not just her reputation, but her. Do you see her? Look at her, Simon. Look at her with a brand new set of eyes. And then notice very carefully what Jesus says next, which takes us directly back to the first verse of the entire story. Jesus says to Simon, it's a very important line, I entered your house. Yes. Back in verse 36, Jesus had entered Simon's house and Jesus had gone directly to reclining at the table. Remember? We said that there was a little bit of red flag there, that there was zero mention of the appropriate hospitality given by the host as Jesus entered the home. And now, what does Jesus do? He points directly to that lack of hospitality, to that lack of love. He says to Simon, I entered your house. What do you do, Simon, as a host when a guest arrives at your house? You know, Simon, And I know, and everybody else in this room knows, Simon, that there are accepted conventions. And you failed to observe them, Simon. Jesus says, You gave me no water for my feet, but this woman, do you see her, Simon? Do you see her? She has wet my feet with her tears in the absence of a basin filled with water. 
And she has wiped them with her hair in the absence of any towel, because you didn't provide one, Simon. Jesus continues in verse 45, you gave me no kiss on my cheek as a standard Middle Eastern greeting when I entered through your door. But from the time I came in, this woman, look at her, Simon, do you see her? This woman, she has not ceased to kiss, not my cheek, but my feet. Verse 46, you, Simon, you you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, what we need to see here is that it wasn't simply that the woman took over the role that Simon was supposed to take. No, it's that this woman, what Jesus is pointing out here, is that this woman went far beyond the protocols, far beyond the conventions that Simon had missed. She lavishly exceeded the standard protocols that Simon had omitted. So instead of the expected provision of water for a guest's feet, this woman had washed Jesus' feet with her own tears and with her hair. Instead of kissing the cheek of Jesus, as was standard convention, this woman had kissed the feet of Jesus in great reverence. Instead of anointing the head with the standard olive oil, this woman had used expensive ointment to anoint the feet of Jesus in humility and in honor. And why, friends? All because she had been forgiven. Her 500 denarii sin debt had been wiped out by the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ, and so Moving was that fact in her life that she couldn't help herself. She went above and beyond. She lavished her gratitude and her love on Jesus. All right, so let's put ourselves in this banquet room. Just in your mind's eye, pretend you're there in the room. And after verse 46, I can't imagine the iciness in this banquet hall now, Jesus, get what's happening here, Jesus, the guest of Simon, at Simon's banquet has done what? Has just called out his host for a lack of hospitality. It would sort of be like this. If you were invited to a dinner at somebody's house, And you went in and you proceeded to chastise your host for not taking your coat at the door and not giving you a dessert fork. This is stunning here, if we consider what's happening here on the part of Jesus. Probably he's not going to be invited back to Simon's house anytime soon. But what's he doing here? He's teaching Simon an important lesson, to be sure. He's doing that, but he's also going to bat for the woman, right? He's going to bat for the woman. Jesus is defending the woman in this context, and the cost of his defending her 
the cost to him is probably going to be a high social cost. There is this costliness for Jesus, note this well, as he defends this sinner, this woman. We'll come back to that. For now, let's go to verse 47. So in the English Standard Version, uh, the translation of the Greek here, we have, as it appears on the screen, therefore I tell you, says Jesus, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now the difficulty with translating the first sentence of this verse is that depending on how the translation comes out, we can be led to think, listen, that because the woman showed such love, she was then forgiven. But of course, that would not be in keeping with the rest of the passage, nor would it be in keeping with the rest of the Bible. Forgiveness from God does not come as the result of our actions. Amen? Forgiveness from God does not come As the result of our actions, forgiveness from God is freely given by God out of His grace. It does not come as a result of what we do. So in the case of this first sentence in verse 47, I think a better translation is the Jerusalem Bibles, which has it this way. Listen to the flow of thought here. Jesus says, For this reason I tell you that her sins, her many sins must have been forgiven, or she would not have shown such great love. Notice the difference? So here, forgiveness comes first in the woman's life from God before her actions of love are played out. The woman's actions of love to Jesus result from the forgiveness that she had received from him. She had been forgiven in a time prior to this banquet. The love that she lavishes upon Jesus here is the fruit of receiving that forgiveness. Her love expressed to Jesus Christ was her response to the forgiveness she had already received. As J.C. Ryle once put it, I want you to listen to this because it's very helpful. J.C. Ryle said, Her many tears, her deep affection her public reverence, her action in anointing his feet were all traceable to one cause. She had been much forgiven, and so she loved much. Her love was the effect of her forgiveness, not the cause. The consequence of her forgiveness not the condition. The result of her forgiveness, not the reason. The fruit of her forgiveness, not the root. That's J.C. Ryle. Friends, this was a woman who sensed deeply, sensed acutely her own spiritual desperation. That's where God wants us to be. 
sensed her own spiritual desperation, her own unpayable debt. And that sense of things deep in her bones made her appreciation of the grace of God in Jesus all the more emphatic and pronounced. Hence, her messy, lavish, beautiful actions of love and gratitude to Jesus. Jesus says at the end of verse 47, he who is forgiven little loves little. My friend, the truth of God's word here is that if you catch sight, if you catch sight of the fact deep in your soul that God has forgiven you your unpayable sin debt, if you are enlightened by God's grace in your inner person to that, you will then be a forgiving, loving person because you won't be able to get over the amount that you have been forgiven and you won't be able to get over the character of your God. So how about it is the question that the Word is asking us here. What is your condition? What is your condition? The text is asking us this day, it's putting a dividing line in front of us, and it's asking, are you more like Simon, am I, or are you more like the woman, am I? Verse 48, almost through the text here, Jesus turns to the woman, and he confirms to her what is already the reality. Your sins are forgiven. They are. Yes, dear lady, it is true. Despite what this group of Pharisees may think, your sins are forgiven. See, what Jesus is doing here in verse 48 is he's giving this woman a public affirmation of what she already knew to be true, that she had been forgiven by his grace. Verse 49 Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus kind of lets them murmur about that as he says in affirmation again to the woman. In verse 50 he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In a time before this banquet, this woman had in faith received the word of Jesus Christ, and then acting in courageous faith. She had come to this banquet seeking Jesus in order to shower her love and her tears upon him. Her faith had saved her. Now she could go in peace at the word of Jesus Christ. And friends, we don't get the response of Simon here. What was Simon thinking now, we wonder, after this whole scene at his banquet had played itself out? Well, we don't know. As often happens in Scripture, it's left open, open-ended for Simon, as it is left open-ended for you and I. How will we respond? That's the question. How will we respond to this portion of the Word of God? What hospitality for Jesus Christ 
is evident right now in your life and in my life. Are we the kind of people who will go out into the world like the woman with tears of joy and tears of repentance, lavishly acting out of our love for Jesus Christ in the midst of the human community? Will we be people like that? Showing the world how much our being forgiven by God has transformed us into people who are forgiving and loving and who are ambassadors of reconciliation. My friend, what will your part be this very week as a forgiven child of God? In closing, we said that there was a costliness to Jesus' defense of the woman at the banquet. There was a costliness. Jesus risked, as he defended her, he risked being socially ostracized after his run-in with Simon at Simon's house. Jesus risked the retaliation of a humiliated Simon and his cronies. But all of that, you see, was merely a foreshadowing of the cross, wasn't it? A foreshadowing of the cross where Jesus would pay the ultimate cost the ultimate price to rescue sinners. At the cost of his shed lifeblood, Jesus came to the aid of people like you and people like me who had unpayable sin debts, people who were spiritually insolvent, people who were spiritually broke, And I hope with everything in me that you are a person who has received Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord while you are still drawing breath, that you have looked to Jesus as the one who pays your unpayable debt, and he paid it with his life. And I pray that you are walking with him and that you are following him and that you are going out into the world later today and this week, going out in lavish gratitude to love your neighbor, to forgive your neighbor, to reconcile with another and be reconciled, and that you're doing that today and this week in a world that is increasingly fascinated with grievances and stuck on games of power. Will we be kingdom people this week, tangibly and proactively? That's the question. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise and thank you for your word, which is authoritative, which is inspired, which is inerrant, which is our life, Lord God. We thank you that you have revealed to us instruction from on high, your desires for your human creatures. And Lord, we know that if we go with your word and with your program, that the world looks very different. And so I pray for every kingdom person who has been born again by the Holy Spirit, who is listening right now, that we would take this word to heart and go forth into this world doing the hard thing often, which is offering forgiveness, offering grace, offering love to our neighbor, help to our neighbor, encouragement, and care in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.